The following is a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. As you know, October 31 is a very, very, very important day. I'm not talking about Halloween. October 31 is a very, very important day because it was on that day in 1517 that an Augustinian monk by the name of Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the castle church door in Wittenberg, Germany. And that event launched one of the greatest events in church history known as the Protestant Reformation. Those 95 theses that Luther pounded onto that door were really complaints Complaints against the abuses of the church that he had noticed in his day. And they were really a call for reformation. They were a call for change. And though he didn't set out to start a worldwide revolution, that's really what happened. Those 95 theses launched a firestorm that ignited in what is now known as the Protestant Reformation. We have the opportunity this week, October 31, Tuesday, of celebrating the 500th anniversary of this event. It is the greatest awakening that has ever occurred in church history. And so we want to take some time to recognize that event. We've been in a five-year study of the five solas of the Reformation, and we want to bring that portion of the series to a close this Sunday today by looking at the final sola of the Reformation You'll remember that we have said throughout this series that this was a monumental event that encompassed, is not encompassed by a single date or a single person. It is an event that spans two centuries, the 16th and 17th century. It really began in 1517 and carried over into 1600s. And it was an event that even began before that, though, began with precursors to the Reformation, men like John Wycliffe, who was a priest in England in the 1300s, he began reading the Bible in his own language, and he began to understand it for the first time, and he began to see the abuses that were taking place within the church of his day. And so he decided and knew that the best way to promote change in the church was to get the Scriptures in the hands of the people, which he did. He was the first one to translate the Bible into English and was condemned for it. He was put under house arrest. He died in prison. Forty years after his death, the church ordered his body exhumed and burned because of him being a heretic. A few years later, a number of years later, another precursor to the Reformation, the man's name was John Huss, the Bohemian reformer. He also came to the same conviction that Wycliffe did, that the Scriptures have the answers and that justification is by faith alone, by grace alone. And he began to stand up for that and teach that. And the church also condemned him for that. And before they burned him, they dressed him in his priestly robes, stripped him naked, and put on his head a paper crown with mock flames and burned him to death as he recited Psalm 51. These men were some of the precursors that launched this incredible movement that really gained steam under Martin Luther and many others like him, many who, who followed in those footsteps, Ulrich Zwingli, John Calvin, Thomas Cranmer, John Knox, John Bunyan, Lady Jane Grey, and a host of others who participated in and helped launch this incredible event. It spanned two centuries. 
It encompassed a number of nations. It began in Germany. It spread to Switzerland. It spread to France. It crossed the English Channel to Britain and to Scotland. Then it crossed and transversed the oceans over here to the New World. It was an incredible movement. It is impossible to overstate the incredible effect that the Protestant Reformation had because it forever altered the face of Western civilization. It had monumental effect on society in that it, it, it stopped the gap between the sacred and the secular. If you lived in the 1300s, there would have been a massive gap between the sacred and the secular to the point that the, the things that were done within the church did not filter into your life and did not filter into your family and did not filter into your marriage and did not filter into really any aspect of life. And the reformers came along and said, no, that's not how it would be. The, the word of God is to penetrate every area of your life. And so it had a great effect socially. It had a great effect politically as it began to recognize the essential equality of every individual. And the result of that was the creation of representative forms of government, which we in our country today enjoy. Well, maybe we don't enjoy it, but we benefit from a democracy. That's the result of the Reformation. It has effect economically through the free market e economics. It had effect educationally as there was a universal uh, move to increase literacy and people began to read and that had a major effect upon people in their understanding of Scripture. So it had all these effects, but without a doubt, the greatest effect of the Protestant Reformation was upon the life of the church, it was religious in its effect. And really what you need to understand is before the Reformation, there was no concept of church membership there was no singing. The things that we did this morning, the, the songs that we sang, if you lived pre-Reformation times and were part of the church, you never would have sung. There was no understanding of the priesthood of the believer and that you all have gifts and abilities to serve within the church. There was none of that. There was none of that understanding. The Bible, in fact, was not even in the language of the people. In fact, it was illegal to own a copy of the Scriptures in your own language. That was a capital offense, and it was illegal to actually translate the Bible into the language of the people. It's impossible for us today, sitting in 2017, to truly appreciate and understand what it was like to be in the church prior to this incredible event. That all changed in the 1400s. As a result of the age of the Renaissance, and people began reading for the first time in their own language and began taught how to read, and as, as world exploration occurred and people began to discover the Greek classics, and as the curtain was pulled back on the state of the church, people began to realize what was really taking place, and they began to read the scriptures, and they began to compare what they saw in the scriptures with what was taking place in the Roman medieval Catholic church. And they said, something doesn't match here. And so the result of this was an incredible effect. Preaching came to be forefront in the church again. There was fellowship over the singing of God's word. There were Bibles placed in the hands of the people. There was a priesthood of every believer where they had gifts and they understood that that was a, a key part of their role within the church. And the pulpit, which was at that time placed to the side of the auditorium, so the altar where the mass could occur was in the center. That was brought back to the center of the church so the preaching of the word could, could occur. Without a doubt, the single greatest effect of the Protestant Reformation was a recovery of this question. And the question is this, what must I do to be saved? That and that alone was the single greatest impact of, of this Reformation was how does someone have a right relationship with God? 
How is someone forgiven? How is someone saved? How is someone brought into fellowship with a holy and righteous God when we are, in fact, sinful and depraved and wretched? How can any of us in that state have a relationship with the God of the universe? That was a question that had to be addressed because if you were in the medieval Catholic church at that time, the answer to that question would have been this. Well, you get baptized as an infant, you go through confirmation, you uh, engage in the sacraments because when you engage in the sacraments, the priest has a, a means of grace to you that the application of those sacraments then carry grace into your life and you get married and then you go to confession and you celebrate the mass and, and you do all of these things and you're saved. It was Jesus and, grace and, faith and, the scriptures and, the Bible and, Jesus and baptism, grace and confirmation, faith and the mass, Jesus and penance, grace and marriage, faith and the last rite, scripture and the pope, scripture and the councils, scripture and the church tradition. And, and, and. The Latin word for and is et. It was Jesus and scripture and grace and faith and all of those other things. And the reformers came along and they said, no, it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The Latin word for alone is sola. So you could really say then that the whole Protestant Reformation came down to the difference between et and sola. The whole, the whole issue at stake here was is it alone or is it in addition to? One little word meant the difference between heaven and hell. That's how monumental this Im impact was. And what distinguishes true saving faith, the reformers said, is that word alone. Christ alone, faith alone, by grace alone. We've studied these already. We'll put a slide up here again just to remind you of these five solas that help us really understand and remember what they are. Five solas, five watchword, five phrases of the Reformation that really summarize the issue at stake here. And if you want to know what it means to be Protestant, which is what our church is, Maranatha Bible Church is a Protestant church, this is it. You ever have anyone ask you, what does it mean to be Protestant? I hear that word thrown around. What does it mean to be a Protestant church? Would you be able to answer? This is the answer to your question. What does it mean that Maranatha Bible Church is a Protestant church? Well, we believe in these things. We believe, first of all, in sola gratia, sola fide, solus Christus, sola scriptura, and soli deo gloria. If you can imagine an ancient temple structure that had a foundation and three pillars and a roof over it, each one of those things represents one of those solas. The foundation would be sola scriptura, the basic, the foundation, the, the most basic part of the structure would be the, the word of God, and that is the, the word that we believe to be true. And then there's three pillars. There's sola gratia, sola fide, solus Christus, each one of those representing a major pillar within the structure, all holding up the roof, which is soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. And so we've been talking about these over the last few years because we want to understand them and we want to have a good understanding of what it means to be Protestant. So let me just briefly review each one of these with you. First, we began a number of years ago with the first one, Sola Scriptura, the foundation of that structure, which is the formal principle of the Reformation. This was really the, the one that uncovered it all. This is the one that got the, the, the Scriptures back in the lives of the church and the life of people. 
reformers came along and said, it's not Scripture plus the Pope. It's not Scripture plus the councils. It's not Scripture plus tradition. It's Scripture alone. It is the Word of God alone. Luther famously said this. He said, a simple layman armed with Scripture is to be believed above a Pope or a council without it. As for the Pope's decretal on indulgences, I say that neither the church nor the Pope can establish articles of faith. These must come from Scripture. For the sake of Scripture, we should reject popes and councils. He was adamant. It comes down to the Word of God. And you remember what happened in his life? He was forced to stand before a trial where all of his works were laid out. A table was erected, and on that table were all of his works displayed there. And they put him there before that table, before the mass of people in this trial at the Diet of Worms. Not the Diet of Worms. The W is a V in German. The Diet of Worms. And he was asked two questions. Question number one, are these your works? And question number two, will you recant? And you remember his famous response. He says this, Since then your majesty and your lordship desire a simple reply, I will answer without horns and without teeth, unless I am convinced by the scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot recant, and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand, I can do no other God help me. What was he saying? He was saying it comes down to the word of God, scripture alone. Number two, the second one we looked at was solus Christus. Solus Christus, Christ alone. You see, if you belong to the medieval Catholic church prior to this reformation, from cradle to grave, a person in that church was dependent upon and controlled by the church itself, and they would receive the grace which would come through that church, through the sacraments, through the councils, through the traditions. This was how you were saved, supposedly in that setting. And so the reformers came along and they said, no, 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 it's not that. It's Christ and him alone. He alone is our sacrifice. He alone is our mediator. He alone is the one who has accomplished redemption. He alone is the one who has provided atonement. It's his finished work at the cross alone that has brought redemption. So, sola scriptura, solus Christus. Number three was sola fide. Salvation is by faith alone, meaning it's through faith, by faith alone. It's not by works. It's not by merit. It's not through human effort by which anyone is saved. It's by faith alone. And Luther came to understand this personally. He was one who tried his best to be saved under that economy. He fasted. He prayed. He slept without blankets. He made his pilgrimage to Rome and he visited the holy sites and viewed the relics and crawled on his knees up the steps of supposedly Pilate's palace. He said later, if ever a monk got to heaven by monkery, it was I. He tried everything. He tried everything within that system to to salve his conscience and to help him understand and believe that he was right with God and he was justified by God and it all fell short until he was meditating on Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, where it says the gospel is the power of God and the salvation In it, the righteousness of God is declared by faith. And he wanted to know, what does that mean by faith? Because he feared the righteousness of God. He feared 
the wrath of God. And he came to see that when a person places their faith and trust in Christ, God then credits to their account, justifying grace. That's sola fide. Number four, last year we addressed sola gratia, that salvation is by grace alone, that the totality of salvation's gift is simply by grace. It's through faith, it's by grace. It is all of God's kindness, it is all of God's mercy, it is all of his work, salvation from end, in the middle, at the end, all the way through, from the beginning to end, it's all of grace, undeserved, unmerited. The initiative of God is what initiates salvation. The grace of God is what guarantees it. The kindness of God is what draws wretched sinners to himself. It is God who gives new life. It is God who causes a person to be born again. It is the sovereign, electing, initiating grace of God in his work that draws sinners to himself. It's all of grace. So that's where we've been. Sola Scriptura. Solus Christus, sola fide, and sola gratia. And it's appropriate that here in this 500th anniversary of the Reformation that we would come to the final one, soli deo gloria. And for a few moments this morning, I just want to take you into this final sola. It's really the capstone of all the other solas. It is really the river into which all the other solas are the tributaries that flow. This is the roof on the edifice. This is the one that really summarizes all of it. This is the one that all the other four solas exist for. Soli Deo Gloria, for the glory of God alone. If God is going to receive glory, it is going to be by Scripture alone, as the only authority within the church. It's going to be as by Christ alone, as the sole Savior of the church. It's going to be by faith alone, not by human effort. And it's going to be by grace alone, unmerited favor of God. That and that alone is what brings God glory in the redemption and the salvation of his people. And anything short of that, listen, anything short of that robs God of his glory. Any other type of understanding of of salvation actually detracts from the glory of God. So the reformers came along and they said, God does his work in the heart of sinners by grace, by faith, through grace, in Christ, according to the scriptures. So that in the end, he gets all the glory. So that no glory goes to man. And that's really what the heart and the the soul of the Reformation was about. It wasn't just about the salvation of individuals and the reform of the church. It was ultimately about the glory of God. That needed to happen because in the Roman system, there was no glory given to God. It was on the basis of human effort, works. Oh, they taught grace, but not grace alone. Oh, they taught Christ, but not Christ alone. Oh, they taught faith, but not faith alone. And so God was being robbed of his glory within the church and through that system. And so the reformers came to the point where they said, no, it is about the glory of God. And the result of this was seeing this aim filtrate into every sphere of life. If you're here today and you understand that life is about the glory of God, it's because you understand what the reformers taught. 
you comprehend what they, what they were going after. You understand the results of that, that the authority of the church in that day was universal, but it didn't go into your home. It didn't affect your life. It didn't affect your marriage. It didn't affect your work ethic. It didn't affect how you use money. It didn't, stop, it didn't go anywhere beyond the four walls of the church. It stopped there. And the result of the Reformation was that the power of the gospel spilled forth from the church, from the walls of that church, into family life and into parenting, and into how you use your finances, and into your motivation for work. It spilled into society, and it spilled into the educational system, and it spilled into politics as they began to understand that all of that was to be done for the glory of God. Psalm 115 verse 1 says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. That, that became the motto of the Reformation. Not to us, O Lord, but to your name be glory. So the result of this now was that God was to be displayed, his glory was to be displayed in every aspect of society, starting in the church, starting with salvation, and spilling out into families, into the workplaces, into the culture. That became the aim, soli deo gloria, became the model not just for the church, but for all of life. Johann Sebastian Bach, who Katie was playing before the service started, you may know this about him, he signed every one of his pieces, SDG. Soli Deo Gloria. Whether it was a church, uh, a church piece he was working on or a piece he was working on for, for another uh, uh, setting, he understood that it was all to be done to the glory of God. And that's really the effect of the Reformation. I want to show you that this morning. I want you to start in Romans chapter 11. So take your Bibles. You're wondering when we would open our Bibles. Now's the time you can do that. Romans chapter 11. Uh, I want to take you to Romans chapter 11 just to kind of set the stage. I was actually tempted to go right on into our next section in Romans 9 because that very next section deals with this very issue, but we'll jump into that next, next Sunday. Romans chapter 11, you, you'll remember because we've been in Romans now for a long time, that Paul in this book has been just exploring the incredible gospel. He's been talking about how we were dead in sin and our horrible condition, chapters 1 through 3. And then he launches into that incredible description of justification by faith in chapters 3 through 5. And he describes what God has done in bringing the gospel to us through Christ. And it comes to us by grace. And when we place our faith and trust in him, then the result is we are justified, we are saved, we are made righteous, declared righteous before a holy God. Chapter 6 through 8, then he began to talk about justification in the form of sanctification or how sanctification then reflects a true justification. And in that process, he told us in chapter 8 that we're secure. We've actually been glorified in a sense that it's almost already been done. In the section that we're currently in, chapters 9 through 11, he's telling us about the promises of God to the people of Israel and how they are faithful and how he will keep those promises to the end. And, and now I want you to put yourself for a moment in his shoes and think how would you respond? You're penning this, you're writing this, and spilling forth from your pen are, are all of these rich gospel truths, justification, sanctification, security, glory of God. How do you respond to that? Look at Romans 11, verse 33. Oh, the depths of the riches 
both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him? You see what erupts from his pen? Praise. This is doxology. This is worship. This is him getting to a point where he almost pushes himself back from his desk and says, I can't even contain myself anymore. Praise and glory and adoration goes to God because of all of these things, because of the depth of his riches and his wisdom and his knowledge, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. And look how he summarizes it. Verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. That is a comprehensive statement. Everything has come from God. Everything exists through God. And all exists for God. You can't get it any more clear than that. God is the source of all things. All things are from him. He enables all things. All things are through him. And all things exist for him. He is the goal of all that we are. So he's the source. He's the sustainer. And he's the rightful end of all that we do. From him, through him, to him is everything. And look at the next phrase. To him be the glory forever. Amen. When you understand the gospel the way the reformers understood it, and when you understand the gospel the way Paul describes it for us in the book of Romans, the only conclusion you can come to is glory be to God. Go to the end of the book, Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter 16, I want you to look at the last three verses because here he summarizes for us really his heart on these issues. This is his conclusion to the book, Romans 16, starting in verse 25. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations leading to the obedience of faith. Now watch this, verse 27. To the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be the glory forever. Amen. Paul gets to the end of 16 chapters where he has unpacked the gospel in all of its nuances, in all of its facets, in all of its beauty, in all of its wonder, in all of its glory, and he gets to the end and he says the rightful conclusion is glory be to God forever. That's the motto of the Reformation God does all he does to glorify his name. God does all he does to bring himself honor. God does all he does to exalt himself. God does all he does for the sake of his name. So all that he does is meant to bring back to him a, a rebound of glory from his creation and from his people. And that's exactly what Paul concludes this book with, all glory be to God. You say, does that make God a megalomaniac? Because if anybody did that, that's exactly what they would be. You want to make yourself something? You want to get glory for yourself? You want to have an ego that you need to, others to puff you up? Is your head really that swollen if you want that much glory given to you? You see, that's the response of how we would deal with someone who thinks that about themselves. But that's not the issue here. Because God really is that great. <laughs> 
And he really is that wonderful. And he really is that worthy of praise. And he really is that glorious. And he really is that mighty. And he really is that wise. And he really is that worthy of worship, right? So it's right for God to receive the glory because he is that glorious. What I want to do for just the rest of our time, and this will be fairly short, is I want to give you four truths that underscore the veracity of soli deo gloria. Four truths that underscore the reality of soli deo gloria. And we're just kind of doing a little Bible study this morning. We're not going to be in one, one passage, but four truths that really help us understand the flow of Scripture and how it supports and proves that soli deo gloria is right and it is biblical. So first, number one, the first truth that underscores soli deo gloria is the fact that creation exists to declare God's glory. Creation exists to display or declare God's glory. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 19. Go back to Psalm chapter 19. This great psalm about the revelation of God in general revelation and the revelation of God in Scripture, which is special revelation. I want you to notice, and you know these verses very well, Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. The psalmist here says, listen, creation itself and everything in it is like a giant arrow that is pointing to the glory of God. That's what he says, that the heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. That means everything in creation, from what's in outer space to the smallest, teeniest, tiniest particle of his creation, shouts his glory. The rocks do that. The mountains do that. The trees and the plants and the flowers and their beauty and their variegated glory also shout that there is a God who's worthy of worship. The birds and the animals do that. The sea creatures do that. The fish do that. The sun, the moon, the stars, the wonders that the Hubble telescope sees, shouts to the glory of God. Down to the teeniest, tiniest insects and creepy, crawly things, except maybe spiders. I'm sure they came in Genesis 3. There's no way they came in Genesis 1. It all shouts God's glory. It all says, not only is there a God, but there is a majestic, glorious, exalted God. Look down in verse 2. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech, nor are there any words. Their voice is not heard. Tremendous. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge, and there is no speech. Now, stop. Does that sound contradictory to you? Verse 2, day to day pours forth speech. Verse 3, there is no speech. Now, when you see something like that, you should go, time out. What is he saying? The psalmist sounds confused here, but he's not. And his whole point is creation... And the universe and everything in it declares and shouts the glory and the beauty of God. But it does so without words. 
It does so without speech. It does so without language. Verse 4, their line has gone out through all the earth, their utterance to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. He says, listen, the sun is a universal witness to the existence and glory of God, and everyone sees its light and everyone feels its heat. So creation is for His glory. Do you know one of the most profound verses in the Bible is Genesis 1-1? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Do you realize that science has told us that everything that can be known or observed fits into five categories? Time, Force, action, space, and matter. Listen to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, that's time. God, that's force. Created, that's action. The heavens, that's space. And the earth, that's matter. In an economy of words, God states what science has already confirmed. Everything that exists, those five categories comprise everything that is susceptible to scientific examination. And from the beginning of the Bible, God says, yeah, I know, because that's the way I designed it. It all shouts His glory. It all means that God has spoken it into existence with the word of his power. He said, let there be light, there was light. Let there be cows and there were cows. Let there be dolphins and there were dolphins. Let there be the sun and the moon and the stars. And they were by the word of his power. And they now exist, according to Psalm 19, for the glory of God. It's tremendous. It all shouts his glory. Every time we go out west, every time we go on a trip somewhere, and we sit in a beautiful place like that, our, our, our mouths are oftentimes just open wide. Unbelievable. Spectacular. Sitting at 12,000 feet, seeing what God has made and the beauty and the splendor and the variety and all that is there. It's my happy place. Because it all shouts God's glory. This is what the Reformation recovered an understanding that in all things, even the creation itself was designed as a giant arrow to declare the glory of God. Number two, there's a second truth that underscores for us the veracity of Soli Deo Gloria. It's that people were created to declare God's glory. You know this, you understand this, this is not anything new, but people were created to declare God's glory. You're in Psalm, go over to the book of Isaiah, just a few books To the right, Isaiah chapter 43, verse 7. Psalm, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 7. Everyone who is called by my name 
whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. Paul, or the writer of Isaiah, Isaiah himself, says, everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory. That's speaking specifically to the nation of Israel, but there's a universal truth here that mankind exists to glorify God. It would make sense then that if the, all creation exists to declare God's glory, then the pinnacle of his creation, which is humans, people, that in and of itself then also must bring God glory. That's the purpose for which we have been designed. It is the purpose for which you exist. Perhaps the best expression of this truth is in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Question number one, what is the chief end of man? Answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's why you exist. That's why you were created. That's why we were put on this planet was to bring God glory. And let's face it, there are so many people today confused about this issue. Why am I here? What's the purpose of life? Why do I exist? What's this all about? Why is this world even here? What's the point of all of this? What, this all this stuff, what, why? What's the point? Listen, it's very easy. This is it. The point of it all is to bring God glory. If you refuse to do that, you're missing the very reason for your existence. You would be like the athlete who hates sports. You would be like the the banker who steals money or the teacher who hates students or the firefighter who is an arsonist. You're, You're missing the very reason for your existence. The very reason for our existence as people is for the glory of God. We were made for that one purpose. And this was lost prior to the Reformation. In the medieval Catholic church, this was not a a major emphasis. This was not driving them. And all that they did, it was clouded in superstition and legalism and abuse and all kinds of false teaching about how someone was right with God and what God was designing them to do. All of that was lost in the midst of that bankrupt system. And the reformers came back and they said, no, we exist for the glory of God. Number three, believers are saved to declare God's glory. Believers are saved to declare God's glory. And really what happened in the Reformation was a recovery of the fact that redemption was for the purpose of the glory of God. That was obscured by all that was going on in the Roman church, in the medieval Catholic system. All of that was lost. It was completely missing that the reason God saves people from their sins is not for themselves or not from the church. It's for the glory of God. And no wonder it was lost because the whole system was bankrupt. The whole system abused grace. The whole system uh, was a a smack against the, the authority of Scripture. And so there was no way in that system that they could have understood that the reason for salvation was the glory of God. It actually robbed God of His glory. And the Reformers, through their diligent study of the Scriptures, came to see that the whole purpose of redemption was the glory of God. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. This tremendous 
section of Scripture, chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, which is one sentence in the original. Paul got going and couldn't stop himself, and so he wrote this one run-on sentence from chapter 1, verse 3, all the way to verse 14. He begins in chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And so what he's going to do after that is he's, he's going to describe the, the means of redemption by which God brings blessing to us. And I want you to notice that in verse 6 and in verse 12 and in verse 14, the reason is all the same. Verse 6, to the praise of the glory of His grace. Verse 12, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. Verse 14, who is a given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. See it? To the praise of His glory, to the praise of His glory, to the praise of His glory. Why does God redeem sinners? Not so you can avoid hell and go to heaven. God redeems sinners. So in the end, He is forever glorified. Now let's look at these very briefly. Look at verse uh, Four. How did God do this and why did God do this? Verse 4 says, Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him in love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will. Paul's point here is that God works redemption in the heart of His people, that they are chosen and adopted by God before the foundation of the world. Why? So that God gets all the glory. So verse 6, so to, the, the, to the praise of the glory of His grace. Then look at verse 7. Skip down to verse 7. Not only has God chosen us and adopted us, He's also redeemed us and forgiven us. Verse 7 says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. We have redemption. We've been bought back from the slavery block of sin. And, and, and what else has happened? We've been received forgiveness of our trespasses. How? According to His grace in Christ. Why has He done this? Skip down to verse 12. To the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. He's chosen and adopted us. He's redeemed and forgiven us all through Christ all through His atonement, all through His work. And then look at this. Look what His Spirit does, verses 13 and 14. In Him you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession. So not only does God in eternity past choose and adopt some, and not only in eternity present or in the present does He redeem and forgive us in Christ, He also stamps us with His Spirit and preserves us. Why? Verse 14, to the praise of His glory. So He chooses and adopts to the praise of His glory. He redeems and forgives to the praise of His glory, and He seals and preserves to the praise of His glory. It's all about God. It's all of what He's done. And the Reformers, when they recovered the true and the pure gospel, the, the implication was obvious. This is about God. He's the one who gets the glory in salvation. Well, there's one more. Number four, the church. 
was formed to declare God's glory. The church was formed to declare God's glory. You're in Ephesians 1. Go over to Ephesians 3. Ephesians 3. Look at verse 20. Now to him who is able to do abundantly more than we all ask or think according to the power that mightily works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. After this prayer where Paul is praying for them, the church in Ephesus, to be strengthened with power and have Christ dwelling in their hearts and be rooted and grounded in love and comprehending the love of God. He's been praying that, verses 14 to 19. He gets to the point where he says, now in verse 20 and 21, to him be the glory in the church. That's why this church exists. That's why the church exists. That's why any church that's true church exists. It exists for the glory of God. In fact, look up in verse 10. I love this. Paul describes his ministry to the Gentiles, verse 9, to bring to light the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. Why? Look at verse 10. So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Speaking of angels, And God does what he does in redemption and forming the church so that when the angels look, they say, wow, God is a wise God who deserves to be praised and worshiped. Angels can't be saved. No demon will ever be saved and no right angel or holy angel will ever experience salvation. So they look at the church and they look what's taking place in the body of Christ and their eyes and their their mouths are open wide as they look at this amazing organism known as the church. And all they can do is glorify God for his work in redeeming sinners. So this is what the Reformation uncovered Salvation is based on sola scriptura, sola gratia, sola fide, through solus Christus. Why? To the honor and the glory of God alone. And so if you have an awareness of the fact that you're to honor and glorify God at your workplace, and you're to honor and glorify God in your relationship with your spouse, And if you have an awareness that you want to use your money to further God's kingdom, and if you have an awareness of the fact that the church exists to glorify God, and if you have a good sense of the fact that everything exists for the glory of God, then you are benefiting from the effect of the Reformation. And so it's for these reasons that we rejoice. 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat, whether you drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the effect of the Reformation. We thank you for the fact that we stand today on the shoulders of those who launched this incredible event in church history. We thank you that through this, God, you really truly uncovered the true and pure and pristine gospel. And we want to be a church. And we want to be a people who bring you glory and honor. 
And so, Father, help us to do that. Help us to ensure that the truths of the gospel, which are in our life, pervade down to every corner of our existence so that you receive the glory in our thoughts, our attitudes, our motivations, our desires, and every other part of our life. We trust you for this and pray to that end. In Christ's name, amen. You've been listening to a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.